Well, you know, God is a gracious God. He takes care of us all the time. I mean, you think about it. So often, something happens. We pray. We say, oh, Lord, do this. And he answers the prayer. And and we go through trials and problems, and he answers it. And, all, and sometimes we, we forget. We, we forget that he answered it. We just say, well, great, and we go on with our lives. But sometimes we remember that, wow, we, we prayed, and he, he took us through the trial, and we thank him, and we praise him for what he's done for us. Uh, I think about David in one of the Psalms, and he talks about how he thanks God, he worships God for his provision and protection. You think about Jonah. Now, this may surprise you. If you've never studied the book of Jonah, we all know that Jonah, Jonah chapter 2, is Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish. Chapter 1, they throw him over the boat, and at the very end of chapter 1, a fish comes up and swallows him. And then chapter 2 is, is Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish. And if you're not careful, you're thinking, oh, man, what is the prayer? But the prayer is actually thanking God for the fish and having the fish swallow him because uh, the fish saved his life. He was drowning. Fish came up and saved him. And the prayer from the belly of the fish is thank you for the fish swallowing me. And then probably, and I'd like to get out of here sometime. But, you know, it's who knows? Well, in Genesis chapter 8, we see Noah getting off of the ark. And what does he do? The first thing he does is he worships God and he offers sacrifices. And we want to think this evening about our worship and sacrifices and how they go together. So let me, we'll just get a little flow. Remember in chapter 7, there's the judgment and and salvation. The judgment, the flood, but the salvation is the grace. It's Noah and his family and the animals, and they all get on the ark. And it's basically the 600th year of his life, the second month, and the 17th day day is when all of this starts and the ark of course as i said earlier is a picture of jesus christ it's the place of salvation we saw that the rain came it rained for 40 days and 40 nights it came up from the sky it came up out of the ground it was just incredible the canopy that covered the earth the best that we can tell at that time there was this cloud cloud cover over the whole earth and that that cloud cover like broke and the rain just fell and water came up out of the earth and it was just an incredible thing in chapter 7 verse 21 it says all the flesh that moved on the earth perished burned and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind of all that was on the dry land all in whose nostrils were the breath of life died boy that is the judgment and the very end of the chapter verse 24 says the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days that's about five months is the way the jewish calendar is set up so as we begin chapter 8 it's been about 150 days. I want to break down the passage for you just to show you how this chapter goes. In verses 1 through 12, we're going to see that the floodwaters are going to go off. They're going to recede. We're going to see that they finally leave the ark, and then we see Noah worships. So it's really a very powerful thing. And as we go through this, um, we've got a little chart. Sometimes it's a little bit hard. I, I don't know if you're going to be able to read it very well. I'll do it the be- tell you the best I can. But we're going to see a little chart because it tells you the number of days, you know, when they started, how many days they were on the ark, and trying to give you a running total of that. So uh, you can leave that up there if you want to, but I'll take it as we go through it in just a second. So let's start chapter 8. We're going to see the conclusion of the judgment and the flood. So verse 1 of chapter 8, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Well, you know that we've already mentioned this is about the 150 day of this thing. God remembered Noah. It's the grace of God that he took care of him all this time. I don't know if you can picture this, but... I don't see anywhere in the scripture that it told, that God said to Noah, you're going to be on the ark for 40 days or a year or six months or 370 days. There's no record of that. So when they got on that ark and the flood came, they didn't have an idea of how long they were going to be on that ark. And, I mean, you can almost see that they, 
They had to really trust God. First of all, trust God to build the thing. Trust God to get on it. When the whole flood's going and the ark is moving and all over the earth, and you know, up and down in the, in the water, they had to trust God. And there's no idea of how long they were going to be on there. You can see them thinking, uh, boy, I hope we got enough food. Because we don't know when this is going to be over. We don't know how long it's going to be. And, and they just had to trust God. And what happened to the animals? There are people talk about all the time about all these animals and these, the wild beast and then the tame animals and all of those things. What happened? And, you know, they speculate that maybe God did sort of a hibernation on some of them to put them to sleep for some of that time. Anyway, we just don't know. But here they are. It says in verse 2, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky uh, were closed and the rain from the sky was restrained and the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. Now, on the chart, we start up here. I just want to show you something. I hope you can read it. It says the 600th year of the second month, the 17th day. That's in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. That is when, if you read that, that's when the flood started. Now, what we already know is that seven days earlier from that, and we'll, we'll get to that in the end, but seven days earlier than that, he already told them to get on the ark. They got on the ark, and they were on the ark seven days before the water ever came. And we figured last time that maybe that was to get them acclimated to the ark and the animals and everything in there. And then on the 600th year, the second month, now that's of his life. The 600th year, the second month, the 17th day of his life, that's when it all started. And in fact, it, it, uh, that verse says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that same day, the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. So what you see on this chart is that's when the flood actually came. They had already been on the ark seven days. We'll get a more running total later. And then as we get a little further in there, we see at the very end of chapter uh, 7 and, and chapter 8, verse 4. If you notice, 8, verse 4 says, In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the, ark, the mountains of Ararat. That's exactly five months, 150 days for them uh, on the 724. Four and eight four. So they've been on the ark 150 days when he begins to have the water going down. And it says that on that, that seventh month, uh, and they started on the second month, so it's been five months, 17th day of the month, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. Now, you know that the stories and the, the things about people trying to find Noah's ark. There's been, when you say the word ark, everybody wants to find ark. Whether it's the Raiders of the Lost Ark, that ark, or whether it's Noah's ark, people have always wanted to find it. And there have been people go into Turkey because that's where Mount Ararat is, and people have got, got in there. You know, of course, the country's closed most of the time for people to go in there, and there have been people sneaked in there, you know, and got and climbed up and looked in mountains. There's, there's books written about the search for Noah's Ark, and people think they have found it. And, you know, they say, well, they, there was one shot one time where they thought they saw it, where the sun was sitting down, looked like the remains of something. And so people have always wanted to find it. I've heard some people say that, well, if we could just find the Noah's Ark, it would prove the Bible. Well, let me tell you, I, I don't need Noah's Ark to prove anything to me. I don't need the Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Ark of the Covenant. I don't need any of that. I mean, I believe it all happened whether we ever find any of it or not. And it could be that we may never find it because people tend to worship things. And it could be that if we found pieces of the ark or something, that people might want to worship that. So you get, you know, you just got to be careful. So in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. So here it is, 150 days. The water's beginning to go down. Now look at verse 5. The waters decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Well, in Genesis 8, 5, 600th year... 
tenth month, day one. That's now 217 days they've been on the ark since the flood began, of course. That's Genesis 8-5. So think about this, 217 days. That's a pretty long time, you know. And to be on that, to be in this enclosed deal, you know, they got the kind of the window, the ventilation going around the top, three levels, animals probably on all the levels, food. And we talked about how big the ark was. We saw that picture that Gary got for us. That, I mean, if, you know, if we walked out right now into our parking lot and got just from the edge of the building, that ark would start right there and go all the way to the gravel, and it would go from one side all the way to the other. It just is that big. That's how huge that would be. That's about the dimensions. So you can see how huge that is. And they were on there, and we, we, we did all the studies back when we built it back in, you know, when he built it back in Chapter 6, and we talked about how big it was and could all the animals fit on there. And the truth is, there was plenty of room for all the animals to fit on there. So in verse 5, it says, The water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Okay, 217 days. Notice what he goes on to say. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. Now, we get a little bit further down. This is plus 40 more days, which is 257 days they've been on the ark. That's Genesis chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Now, what does he do there? It says he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. So he sent out a bird. A raven is more of a scavenger-type bird. He sent that bird out to sea, and I'm, I'm assuming that bird is going and eating some, whatever things he can find. Scavenger-type. But then what else he did? He sent out a dove. A dove is not a scavenger-type bird. He sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land, but the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him in the ark, for the water was on the surface of the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark himself. So he sent out a raven, which was kind of a scavenger bird, and it flew around and probably ate some things. But when he sent out the dove, he could tell that the water was still too high because there was no place for that little dove to, to light, so the bird came back to him. <coughs> So they've been on the ark now 257 days is where they are. And so look what he goes on to do. Verse 10. So he waited yet another seven days, and he sent out the dove from the ark. Now, in this chart, it starts again at the top, at the 40 days, 257 days. And then we get to verse 10 and 11. Seven more days were added. They've been on it now 264 days. Just giving you the idea. Notice verse 11. The dove came back toward the evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. So at this point, at probably 264 days, he's thinking, you know, it's the water's about gone, and we can, we can get off of here. That's what he's thinking. Then it says in verse 12, Then he waited yet another seven days, sent the dove out. She didn't come back. She did not return to him. So he sent out, now we're up to 271 days. And that's Genesis 8:12. So think about that. 271 days on the ark, giving us the flow. And then we get to verse 13. Here's what it says. Now, it came about in the 601st year, in the first of the month, 
and excuse me, in six hundred and first year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark. We're not sure what that was because there was a door that God shut them in, and maybe that was the door. Maybe He opens this door in the side somehow where He can see out better. They're not coming off the ark yet, but He can see better. And He looked out, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. When we get to verse thirteen, they've now been six hundred and one year. This is the six hundred first year of His life. Remember, it started in six hundred, the first month. And, and uh, day one, that's 307 days that they've been on the ark, Genesis 8:13. And so he opens it up and he looks out and he says it's dry. But look at the next verse. And you could say, well, why doesn't he just go right off the ark? Wouldn't you just go right off the ark? You've been on the thing how many days? 307 days? Wouldn't you be saying, I think it's about time to get off? But you know what? Who told him to get on the ark? And God shut the door. Who's going to tell him to get off the ark? God's going to tell him to get off. He's not going till it's time. And so, verse 14, In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. So we go back up here, and it was 600 first month, one day, 307. Now, it's 601 second month, 27th day. That's 370 days they've been on the ark. Here's what it says. The in the second month, on the 27th day, the earth was dry. Now, they've been on it a total of 377 days. It's 370 days since the rain came, but they had already been on there seven days before. So that's including the seven days on the ark before the flood. 377 days. It's pretty powerful. It's one year and 17 days. One year and 10 days since the rain started. One year and 17 days that they actually got on the ark. And notice when they come off. Then God spoke to Noah, saying... Now think about this. It had been dry, I think about 307, 307 days. Or was it 370? Let's see, whatever it was, 307 days. It's been dry, but they didn't go off there yet. And then Lord, God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Noah did not go on the ark until God said, get on the ark. Noah did not come off the ark until God said, come off the ark. And I think one of the things we have to see there is that um, Noah obeyed. And that's one of the things that we want to learn from this passage. And before we get to that, notice in verse 15 it says, that God spoke to Noah, you and you get off the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives. And then he says, bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Does that sound familiar to, to you? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Where have you heard that before? Adam and Eve. In the very beginning of the book, when God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, well, uh, they did pretty good. But the people were evil. And so he's wiped them out. And now he's telling eight people to start over and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Everything's going to begin from right here. That's pretty amazing to think about that all of the peoples of the world came from this family. Three sons, and Noah and his wife, and of course their wives. Very powerful. All of the people on the earth will begin from these, in a sense, four families. People ask questions all the time. Well, how do you get all this diversity? What what did they look like? And how do you have some people that are dark, and some people that are light, and some people that are different? How do you have this from this family? Well, how do we know what they look like? 
How do we know how diverse they were or not diverse? Who knows? How do we know what the wives that Noah's sons had looked like and what their offspring is going to look like? We don't know. And I've had people say, well, that couldn't work because this is some family and how can all the different groups come out of that? I don't know. And you don't know what they look like and you don't know how God did it. You don't know what he was doing. But we know what we look like now. And we're all different. So look at verse 18. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. And every beast, every creeping thing and every bird and everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. And so I think this is the key, that this is the characteristic of Noah. He obeyed God. And I think that when you think about Noah and what sort of separated him from the rest of the world. Now, we know it was the grace of God that God chose Noah. He didn't have to choose Noah. He didn't choose Noah because how different Noah was. We do know that Noah was a righteous man, which meant Noah was a believer. And let me tell you this. I don't mean this bad. There may have been believers who did not get on that ark. There may have been believers who did not trust God in this situation, and that's why they died. We're not saying that there were only eight believers. We know there were eight souls that were saved through the ark. We don't know how many other people were actually believers that died. But one of the key characteristics of Noah is that he obeyed God. That's the kind of man that he was. Listen to this. Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. You know what he did? He believed God. He believed God and built the ark. He obeyed God. God came to him and told him to build the ark. He believed God. Now, we talked about it at the very beginning. And can you imagine living at that time and you begin to build this barge, this big ship, this big barge-looking thing that is so massive it would cover our entire parking lot out there. And people asked you what you are doing. And you tell them that there's a flood coming on the earth and God is going to destroy the earth and whoever believes him will get into this, this ark, this big boat, and they'll be safe. And that all the animals, they're going to get the animals and get them on there. And people would look at you and say, you're an absolute idiot. You've lost your mind. This is not true. I'm sure they made fun of him. And the thing about it was so amazing, it had not rained. It wasn't like they'd had some bad rains and, and he'd say, you remember back about... Two and a half years ago when it flooded over there in the valley, there hadn't been any floods in the valley. There hadn't been any rain. It had never rained yet. We know from the book of Genesis, early part, that the, the water would come up and a mist would come up in the evening and, and water the ground. So they, they've had the canopy above the earth. There's not been rain. So to explain to somebody, to say what's going to happen, it says, By faith Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen. They'd never seen this flood, anything like it. In reverence, prepared the ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world. Basically, he's saying, I believe God in this. You don't believe God in this. And there's going to be a judgment coming. And, and he became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. It's believing and obeying. It was used to be the old song, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Trust and obey. Believe and obey. That's the bottom line. And that's what we see here. I think the next slide says the key for us as believers is to take God at his word and to obey him, to believe and to obey. Noah was an incredible man. You know, you look at the Bible and you, you see some of these people. And I mean, one of the things you might want to do sometimes, just go to Hebrews 11. And read the chapter, because it's called the Hall of Fame of Faith chapter. And it's by faith this person did this, and by faith this person did this, and by faith, by faith, by faith. And, and there's some things in there you'd go, I don't know if I would do that. 
I mean, I don't know if I'd trust God on that. I mean, I don't know if somebody said, do this, I'd do this. I mean, I don't, you know, you just see how amazing they were. But guess what? They're just like you and me. They're the same as us. And then we see Paul. You, you think you think Paul was any greater than you are? Paul was a great man, but he was a man. And he struggled in the same way that you do. But he trusted God and obeyed. Noah trusted God and obeyed. And that's what we need to do. The key for us as believers is to take God at his word and obey him. Obey him to believe and to obey. Well, where did all the water come from? We said that it came up out of the ground. It came from the sky. They were on the ark for a year and 17 days. Was it a worldwide flood? What's the answer? Yes. And there are people today who will say it was just in that valley. Well, we're going to see what God says in just a second. But you remember that it said the tops of all the mountains were covered. It didn't say the tops of a mountain was covered. It didn't say that little section was covered. It said the top of every mountain. It said that every person who had the breath of life died. It didn't say some people died. It said everyone. What does Noah do when he gets off the ark? What would you do? Stretch? Whoa, boy, that was tight. But anyway, what does he do? Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. You remember that there were two of every animal, but then some of the clean animals, the ones that you could offer sacrifices, he had seven. Because you'd hate to, you know, wipe out a whole species by going, oh, I got the wrong one. Sorry. I, I didn't, I forgot, you know, and you just ruined the whole thing. Uh, no, that's what happened, I think, maybe unicorns. I think maybe he accidentally got unicorns, and that's what happened. Well, yeah, I don't know. The Lord built, a, the Noah built an altar to the Lord, took up every clean animal, every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings. The very first thing that he does is he worships God through an offering. He takes these clean animals and birds and he offers burnt offerings. He worshiped God as he came off the ark. What he's really saying is, God, you took care of me and you have always taken care of me. And for 377 days, you took care of me. And I worship you. And the burnt offering, of course, is a total dedication. You know that uh, even when you get to the Mosaic Law, they're very clear on that, that there were certain offerings you could offer, but there was one called a burnt offering in which you took an animal and you killed it and you burned it completely up because it was a picture of a total dedication. You give it all. And in our lives, we think of Romans 12 where he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what we offer. We offer our lives as a whole. We say to God, I give you my life completely. It is no surprise that the first act was worship. Grateful thanks to God for the salvation that he had done for him. It's very powerful. Worship and response. Think about worship. What exactly is worship? We just had membership training. One of the, one of the parts of membership training is we start talking about the idea of worship. And a lot of people are confused because some people think worship's the music. And they'll say, I really like the worship and I like the teaching. Well, the music is music. And the teaching is teaching. And responding to God is worship. And you can respond to God through singing and praying and giving and studying and teaching. So all of that worship. Worship is responding to God. And sometimes people associate worship with emotion. You may not have emotion when you respond to God. As we sing, as we pray, as we give, as we study, our response to God is worship. How did Noah worship God? He responded by offering the sacrifice. In just a minute, we'll talk a little bit about sacrifices. But what did Noah do? He worshipped. Look at verse 21. What did God do? God's response. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. 
And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I'll never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now, next week when we get to chapter 9, he then comes to Noah and makes a covenant with him. And the covenant is the promise that he will never destroy the earth by flood again. He doesn't tell it right there. It just it, At the end of chapter 8, God says to himself, it doesn't say he said to Noah. Noah doesn't know at this point. When he comes off the ark, whether God's going to say, better keep that thing set over there at the right because you may have to get back on it again. He didn't know that. It's not going to be till chapter 9 that God says, never again will I do this. But to himself in chapter 8, verse 21, the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. I want to ask you a question for a second. Do you think that today, because this is, this is in the days of Noah, do you think that today that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth? You do? You think we're evil? Do you think that we're like Paul says, that I see in one who wants to do good there is evil inside of me? Do you believe there's evil inside of you? I, 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 I know there is inside of all of us. Because we're fallen people. And just as God says the intent of every man's heart is evil, even from his youth, is true. Our culture would like to say that man is good, that man is basically good, that man comes into an environment as almost a clean slate and he's really basically good. And if he has some bad things happen to him or a tough upbringing, he'll probably be bad. But if he has some good things happen to him, he could turn out to be good. We know that's not accurate at all. We come into the world dead in trespasses and sins. We have the natural bent to sin. And if we obey our flesh, we will naturally do wrong. And as a believer now, with the power of God inside of us, if we've listened to our flesh, we will still do wrong. And we're capable of any sin. It's a very powerful thing. God smelled the soothing aroma. It's a picture of God going, yeah, I'm smelling that. That's a good sacrifice. I'm glad you offered it. I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Now, in verse 22, then he makes this statement. While the earth remains, seed, time, and harvest, and cold, and heat, and summer, and winter, and day, and night, it shall not cease. Now, there's a thought here. I want you to think about this. Some have said that before the flood, there wasn't the seasons, and there wasn't the things the way there are now, simply because of the cloud cover and the way it was, and that things were pretty much the same all the time. And so after the flood, because of the cloud cover being gone, he says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Now, some have said it wasn't exactly the same. I don't know. I, I would think that there were day and nights because the Bible talks about the evening, morning, first day and all of those kind of things. And I, there seemed to be summer and winter. Maybe it was just he's saying there that as long as this earth remains, it will go on just like this pattern until I decide to deal with it. And one thing we know for sure, when he deals with it, it will not be a flood again. How will he deal with it? What's he going to do? He's going to burn it up. And he, Peter tells us that he's going to burn it up. It's the whole earth's going to melt away. The whole earth's going to be burned up. That's why we think about what lasts forever. And we talked about it in membership training. We said, what are the things that last forever? We know it's not material things. We know it's not cars and homes and clothes and things like that. It's all going to be burned up. There's only two things that last forever besides God. And that's people and the Word of God. 
And that's why if you want to put something, if you want to invest your time in something that's eternal, invest it in knowing the Word of God and invest your life in people. Because people last for, they last forever. Either they'll last forever with Jesus Christ or they'll last forever separated from Christ. And the Word of God abides forever. Isaiah 40, verse 3, the flower fades and the grass dies, but the Word of God abides forever. So if you really want to invest yourself in something that's going to have eternal results, it's invest in knowing the Word and invest your life in people. It's very powerful. Well, let's think about sacrifices for just a second. Because Noah got off the ark and he offered these animals a sacrifice. And we think about sacrifices because we realize that Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin forever. So we're not under a sacrificial system in the way that the Old Testament was before Jesus died on the cross. When he died on the cross, there's no sacrifice for sin left. But there are sacrifices. And they're not animal sacrifices. And, and, and so what are they? What are sacrifices that we can offer? Well, the first one is we offer ourselves. Romans 12 says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a what? A living sacrifice. Uh, it's so different than the Old Testament. The Old Testament, you killed an animal as a dead sacrifice, and it covered your sin. In the New Testament, Jesus, of course, has already paid for all sin, so there's no sacrifices for sin. He says, what I want you to offer to me is yourself. I want, you, me, I want you to offer your life. He said, I beseech you, brethren, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. The old, the old saying is, the problem with the living sacrifice, it keeps crawling off the altar. And the problem with us is that we say, God, I want my life to count for you, and then we, we don't always live for him. I've told you this before, that I trusted Christ when I was 19 years old. And that moment that I believed in Jesus Christ as my Savior, I went from death to life from being in the family of Satan, so to speak, to being in the family of God, being destined for the lake of fire, and then being now destined for eternal life. But I want you to know that I grew a little bit as a Christian, but not a lot. And there were some years in which I did not grow at all, even though I knew that you could say to me, you think you'll go to heaven when you die? I said, of course I will. I trusted in Christ as my Savior. He's my Savior. It wasn't until I offered my life as a sacrifice to God, that my life really began to change. I've told you I was coaching at Mississippi State, and I came home one night and said to God, from this point on, I want my life to count for you. I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything, whatever you want me to do. And I've never been the same since then. And what I hope and pray is that all of us in this room, that you'll offer yourself. One of the main sacrifices we can offer as a child of God is ourself. And if you never have, I want you to really consider saying to God, I want my life to count for you. And that's big. Because it costs you your life. You'll never be the same because you've given your life up. You say, of course, you act like we were controlling it anyway, and we weren't. God's in control of everything, but we give our lives in service. There's a second thing that we can offer as a sacrifice. In that book of Hebrews, chapter 13, he talks about offering up the sacrifice of good works. When you do good, we know Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 10 says we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're supposed to do good works. One of the problems with a grace church, when you hold to the grace of God and you talk about salvation not being works at all, but simply faith alone and Christ alone, people misunderstand. They think you say that they think we're saying no works at all. Listen, no works at all for salvation has nothing to do with it. 
But there should be a lot of works. We should live righteously and godly, and we can offer up the sacrifice of good works. Hebrews 13 talks about the sacrifice of God, the sacrifice pleasing to God, doing good to others as we do good works. There's a third sacrifice we can do, and that's the praise. Hebrews 13 says we offer up the praise of our of our lips and our song. And so when you're singing and when you're praising God, that's a sacrifice to God. And, you know, you don't think about it. You say, am I offering a sacrifice? Yes, as you praise God. And then the fourth thing is giving. Philippians chapter 4, when they sent stuff to Paul, and Paul said that this was a sacrifice. They sent it to him, but he said, what you have given is a sacrifice well-pleasing to God. And so when you offer your life, it's a sacrifice. When you offer up uh, your praise, it's a sacrifice. When you offer up your, you know, your, your good works, that's a sacrifice. And when you give... That's a sacrifice to God. It's an offering. So may we offer our sacrifices to God as acts of worship to God. Well, what have we seen? Let me, let me go through this, give you some applications, and then if you have questions, time's almost up, but if you have questions, we can do that. We see Noah entered the ark of the family on the 600th year of the second month, the 10th day, and the door was shut, and then on the 17th day, the flood came. Uh, water came from the sky and the ground 40 days and 40 nights, rose up to 150 days, and the water started going back down, and after a year and 17 days, Noah came off of the ark, and when he came off the ark, he worshipped God. Here's some applications. First of all, understand the consequences of sin. See, the wages of sin is death. You realize the entire world perished because of sin and wickedness? <coughs> Think about what that would be like if every human being except eight died today and God said, this is going to happen because you're sinners. Think about that. What it was like at that time. God judges sin. We talked about this last time, that God judges sin. Sin is always against God. There's always judgment and discipline connected with sin. And it's never alone. When you sin and you think nobody knows, it's only affecting me, it affects you, it affects God, and I guarantee you because you're out of fellowship with God when you sin, it's going to affect people around you one way or the other. It's never alone. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin appears. There's an old statement that says sin's like a man's beard. It just constantly keeps coming back. Jesus is the place of escape. He is the place for us. Understand the consequences. He is our refuge. Isaiah 53 says he bore for us our sins. First John, he's the satisfactory payment. The only way to deal with the consequences of sin is come to Jesus Christ as Savior. He delivers us from sin. The second application would be to respond to God in worship. Think about it. Noah came off the ark and he offered sacrifices. Let's do the same. What are the sacrifices we offer? We offer ourselves as living sacrifices. You will never be the same. If you've never done it, you will never be the same when you come to God and say, from this day forward, take my life. You'll never be the same. Second, offer up our good works. Hebrews 13, just, just say, I'm, I'm, I want my life to count for you. I want works to count for you. I want to lift them up. Third thing is offer up the praise of our lips as we sing, as we talk, as we praise. And then the last one, of course, is as we give. And as you give, it's an act of worship and it's a, it's a, a sacrifice to God. It's very, very powerful. The final thing, God keeps his word. He is faithful. To judge, I will blot out. He is faithful to save. I will make a covenant. We're going to see the covenant in chapter 9. But he really was faithful to save Noah and his family. It, uh, you know, uh, it's an amazing thing because he says, I'm going to judge and he judges. When he says, I'm going to save, I'm going to save. You know what he promised me? He promised me eternal life. And I guarantee you I have it. Because whatever he says, 
He means. And when he says, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish, guess what? I got eternal life. I'm never going to perish. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. He'll never leave me or forsake me. He'll supply every need that I have. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Those are just promises that he's promised me that are guarantees. So listen, he keeps his word. He's faithful to judge. He's faithful to save. He's faithful to do everything. Go to the Bible. Base your life on the truths of God's word. Because you can count on it. May we understand the consequences of sin. May we come to the provision of Jesus Christ. May we worship God through our sacrifices as we base our lives on the unchanging word of God. Well, let's pray. And if you've got questions or comments, we'll, we'll deal with it. Heavenly Father, what a great, great, great night. Thank you for these truths. Lord, thank you, first of all, that uh, we see the consequences of sin, that the entire old world at the time of Noah perished except for eight people because of the sin of mankind. Lord, thank you that you are a righteous God and you deal with sin and that we realize that there are consequences because it's always against you. There's discipline and it's never alone. So thank you, Lord, that you have a provision for us, and that is Jesus Christ. Lord, may we respond to you in worship as we give ourselves our good works our praise our giving all of those as acts of worship to you thank you lord and then finally thank you that you keep your word you are faithful to judge you're faithful to save every promise that you have ever given to us we can guarantee that we have that promise because whatever you say you do thank you lord we ask this in jesus name amen